We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You doubled sales. You you did something unprecedented in American consumerism in terms of creating this massive brand around somebody who's not playing. How do you do it? The idea that we came up with was let's create a brand that represents the things that Michael Jordan represented on the basketball court and off the basketball court. And let's create that brand and build it around those characteristics Of course, the man is at the center of it, but it's really what the man represented. Hard work, dedication, excellence, all those things that Michael Jordan represented on the court. We also had to zero in on who our consumer focus was going to be and who was our target consumer. And and we uh, realized that, you know, there's a kid in the hood who's like the the leader on the basketball team, the best-dressed kid. He's the one that has everything first. That's the kid we targeted. And because the thinking was, if we can get that kid, he'll influence other people. We talked to kids. We, you know, interacted with them and really tried to understand what they what they would expect from a brand like Jordan. They were willing to share with us that the product has to be right. The communication has to be right. All the things that we're doing and focusing and targeting them have to be on point. And, and the more we learned and studied the consumer, the more we understood you know, what we needed to do to build a brand. Larry Miller is the author of the new book, Jump, which tells the story of how he ran the Jordan brand for years and helped make it even bigger than it was before. But it also tells the story of how he was a young man in Philadelphia who shot and killed somebody. Larry's been talking to the family of the deceased man over the past few weeks, and they had a meeting. They forgave him. And I wanted to talk about that meeting, that forgiveness, the remorse that he's felt over the years, as well as his years in basketball, working with Michael Jordan and with the Trailblazers. So it's a wide-ranging conversation 
with the chairman of the Jordan brand, Larry Miller, on Touré Show. So how do you feel? There's been a lot of upheaval around the book. The family of the man who was killed has learned what happened and, and spoken to you, confronted you. How do you feel after all that's gone down? Uh, you know, I'm kind of, kind of mixed emotions. I mean, you know, for, for 40 plus years, I hid all of this and kept it all bottled up inside of me and was worried and concerned and nervous about it coming out. And now to like put it all out to the world is a little, uh, disconcerting for me, but it's also been, uh, freeing for me because I don't feel like I have to hide a part of who I am. Um, you know, I don't feel like I'm not having to worry and be nervous about something coming out at some point. Um, so, so that really feels, that part feels really good. So it's kind of, kind of a mix. And I think I'm, uh, you know, getting used to, it's taking some getting used to the fact that the world knows my story now. Um, but, but I'm getting used to it. I'm getting used to it. I mean, you know, there was a, there was a report about, um, you meeting with his family. I'm sure that was very tense and complicated. You know, what happened there? Uh, it, it was, I was, of course, I was, uh, extremely nervous going into the meeting. Um, they are amazing people. Um, I started the meeting by telling them how sorry and remorseful I was for what happened. And um, they each uh, spoke their piece and shared their feelings. Um, it was uh, uh, Mr. White's sister, his son, and his daughter. And um, each one of them uh, expressed their feelings. But at the end of each one of them speaking, they said, but I forgive you. And that was the best thing that I could have possibly heard. Uh, at the end of the meeting, um, they all hugged me. And uh, we agreed that um, we would work together to come up with a way to memorialize Mr. White into the future. Uh, you know, we're talking now about uh, possibly scholarship uh, in his name. So it, it, for me, um, the meeting could not have gone better. Uh, just the fact that, like I said, to receive that forgiveness from them was, was all that I could have asked for. Did one of them said that if this had been earlier years earlier, she would have jumped over the table and what would, what did she say that she would have strangled? Yeah. You? Yeah. yeah. Well, she just said, um, she said, you know, hey, we're we're a forgiving family, and I, I definitely forgive you. And we moved on. She said, "But if this was thirty years ago, I'd have been coming across the table on you." And I, and and I get that a hundred percent because yeah. you know I understand where she's coming from. I'm just uh, like I said, I'm just happy that we we are at a point now where they can forgive, and we can hopefully have some healing on on both sides and and kind of move forward. This has bothered you for decades. This has been nightmares, daymares, fear of it coming out, stress, migraines, hospitals. I mean, like this has been a present part of your private life for a very, right? I mean, you, you didn't forget it. You, it, it, it was very present. 
Absolutely. And, um, you know, on a, on a couple of different levels, one, you know, just struggling with the fact that, um, you know, I was responsible for taking the life of a young black man that really, uh, continued to eat at me. And I think, um, you know, hopefully some 16 year old out there might hear this story and realize that, you know, they could be about to do something that they're going to regret for the rest of their life. Um, so, you know, that, that was a big part of it. The other part was just the fear and nervousness that this would come out and kind of ruin, you know, everything that I had built up to that point. Uh, so, so yeah, I was dealing with, uh, with a lot of that and it was causing, um, nightmares and migraines and I'm sure, you know, all kinds of things that stress and anxiety can cause to your body is what was happening to me. Um, you know, I think part of the story here is that if we give people a second chance in life, no matter how bad they were at one younger part of their life, they can become valuable members of society. And so often we want to give people 30, 40, 50, 60 year sentences, send them away, never allow them a chance to rehabilitate. Um, and, and this is a story where, you know, what happened to Mr. White is horrible, but if we had thrown you away, that would have been a second tragedy. No, I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, I was given an opportunity uh, when I was incarcerated the last time uh, the jail I was at had a, uh, a program where you could take college classes inside the jail and then qualify to move into these trailers that were actually outside the jail wall. And you could leave every day and go to school and then come back in the evening. You had to be back by eight o'clock in the evening every day. And when I first heard about that program, I was like, that's how I want to do my time. You know what I mean? If I can get into a program like that. But once I got into the program and started to feel the support of different people that were kind of guiding me along the way. And um, I started to, to actually believe that, you know, maybe I can change my life through this process. And uh, so I got into that program, got my associate's degree while I was in that program, um, transferred down to Temple University, was able to transfer all of my credits started at Temple as a junior while I was living at Halfway House and um, finished my degree at Temple and, and started my career. But if that program wasn't in existence when I was there, I wouldn't have been able to do what, what I've done. Uh, unfortunately, that program doesn't exist anymore. And uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, programs like that don't exist anymore. And that was that's one of the reasons one of the major reasons for, for doing this was to point that out and to maybe help implement some of those programs again, or in places where they do have the programs, maybe to help, you know, pour some gasoline on them to, to get them to, to be even, even more effective. So, uh, that, but that program was what really changed my life for me. And, and again, I, I, uh, I'm hoping that we can, um, inspire, and move people to implement programs like that again. So you, you've been running Jordan brand for a very long time. This story is, is, is rising. I got to go to MJ and tell him, cause he's got to hear it from me. He can't read about it in the paper or whatever, or see it online. Yeah. What's, what's the feeling? 
you know, what's the conversation? I mean, you don't want to divulge a specific conversation, but like, how is that telling him and how did that go? Uh, you know, it, it was, I, I was nervous about it. Um, but I, I feel like over the years, uh, you know, MJ and I become friends as well. And you're right. I did not want him to hear this from somewhere else other than hearing it directly from me. Um, and so, uh, I reached out and set up an opportunity would have, would have preferred to do it in person, but because of COVID, uh, we ended up doing a call and, um, you know, my, my daughter, my, my oldest daughter is the one who uh, really pushed me to do this. If it wasn't for her pushing and needing me, I, I probably would not have done it. And then her and I actually worked together on the project. But um, I kind of shared with MJ that uh, my daughter w was the one who pushed me to do it and that she felt that this could be a story that could inspire some people, could be motivational for some people. And after I kind of shared with MJ, uh, his comment to me was, I agree with your daughter. You need to tell this story. I wow. think it can motivate and help some people. And, how, you know, I'll, I'll support you however I can. So that that was, you know, to me, uh, he and Phil Knight were two of the people that I kind of wanted to make sure I shared this with first. And I, and I think if either one of them had discouraged me or been like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do this, I, I would have been reluctant. But they were both. Um, extremely supportive and both uh, encouraged me to to go forward with telling the story. Did 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 no what did no one in your life say shut your mouth, <laughs> don't say anything. <laughs> You're an older man. You've had this great career. Like let it go. In the back of my mind, I was telling myself that, um, <laughs> but. But, you know, the, the more I thought about it and the more uh, my daughter and I talked about it and as I shared with people like like MJ and Phil Knight and they were encouraging, um, the more I started to believe that sharing this story is the right thing to do and that it can, uh, you know, a friend of mine was like, man, you were planning to take that, take this story to the grave with you. I was like, yeah, I was. Um, but again, I think the fact that it can inspire, motivate some people. Uh, maybe, you know, there are folks that are currently incarcerated who can hear about this and maybe start to look for opportunities and ways that they can uh, learn or, you know, connect with some things that can help improve their lives going forward. Uh, you know, maybe there's someone who's recently gotten out or was incarcerated and they hear this story and say, you know, if he can do it, then, then maybe I can as well. Um, and like I said earlier, maybe there's a 16 year old Larry Miller out there who, uh, you know, is about to do something stupid or is going down that path. And, you know, maybe this story can um, inspire them to to try to change their lives. So, so, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I talked to my daughter and other folks, the more I believe that um, I'm doing the right thing by sharing this story, even though for me, it would have been a lot more comfortable to just kind of try to ride it out. But, but at the same time, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to experience the freedom that I'm feeling now in not having this be something that's hanging over my head or that I'm worried or concerned about. So I, I think in addition to, you know, helping other people and trying to, you know, maybe motivate and inspire some other people, it also was 
beneficial for me personally to to get this off my soul. So your daughter knew this about you? She, you know, my daughter knew that growing up, I was, you know, she, as she was growing up, I was in jail when she was a kid. And, um, and I don't, she didn't know the details. She just knew that I had a story of being incarcerated over and over and had been able to change my life and had seen that process. And I think having seen that process, she was like that. You need to share this story because it can help some people. The way you've been able to change your life could really help some people to know that if you could do it, maybe they could do it. But she didn't know a lot of the details. And so basically the way the process worked is that her and I, this and this was a 13, 14 year process because once she convinced me, okay, we're going to do this, um, then what we would do is we would get together maybe, I don't know, whenever, based on my schedule, whenever we could, and we would sit for hours and um, we would talk. She'd record it. She'd ask questions. I'd tell her about things that happened in my past, kind of going through different parts of it. She would record it and then go back and she would transcribe it. So at the end, we had a document, but it wasn't it, it wasn't a book. It was like a manuscript of all this information and all this stuff put together. And so that's when uh, it's probably three, four years ago that we actually started working on taking that document and, and creating a book. And, uh, and, you know, so that's, that's how we got to, to where we are. But, but again, it was her motivating and pushing me that, that, uh, that got us here. Wow. Daughters will push us to be our best selves. No question. No question. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. 
Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. From the outside, it would appear that running the Jordan brand is got to be the easiest thing in the world. You have the greatest icon. You have a shoe that everybody loves. You know, like, what's the big deal? <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's far tougher than it appears. Uh, it, it, it was a challenge. Um, when we first decided that, uh, you know, we were going to create this brand uh, around Jordan, uh, well, you know, MJ was about to retire at the time from from the Bulls for the last time. And, you know, there was a lot of concern and a lot of angst around the fact that the formula was we, you know, create this cool shoe, put it with some cool marketing, whether it's uh, Bugs Bunny or Spike Lee or somebody. And then MJ plays in 82 games and into the playoffs in the shoe. And that was the formula. And now you're taking him playing out of the formula. And a lot of people thought that, hey, it's been a good run, but it's over at this point. We've, but there never, were some seen, of us, we've never seen this. An athlete continue to have this level of influence after their career. No, no question. And there were a lot of folks, um, both internally and externally, who thought this, this will never work. Um, but there was a group of us inside that um, really believed that we could do something with this, that we could take that logo, which was a logo under Nike basketball, and actually create a brand uh, with it. And, um, you know, our goal was to create the Michael Jordan of brands. We wanted to create a brand that represented MJ both on and off the court. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I was asked to put a team together and strategies on, on how we were going to do that. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like it worked out pretty well. Well, you, you you doubled sales. You you did something unprecedented in American consumerism in terms of creating this massive brand around somebody who's not playing. Um, so what are some of the keys to making it work when you have a retired Jordan who's not giving you what, you know, a hundred games a year that he's playing. He's not on television every night, flying through the air, doing amazing things like how do you do it? Well, the idea, the idea that we came up with was, you know, let's, let's create a brand that represents the things that Michael Jordan represented on the basketball court and off the basketball court. And let's create that brand and build it around those characteristics. Of course, the man is at the center of it, but it's really what the man represented. Hard work, dedication, excellence, all those things that Michael Jordan represented on the court. We wanted to create a brand that 
represented those things, whether Michael's playing or not playing, that those characteristics, those things that people um, looked at Michael Jordan and, and saw in him, that we could try to create that in the brand. And, uh, and, and that was our strategy going forward is to, you know, we're going to, we're going to take those characteristics and we're going to build a brand that represents that um, in the eyes of the consumer. We also had to zero in on who our consumer focus was going to be and who was our target, who's our, our target consumer. And, and we uh, realized that, you know, there's a kid in the hood who's like the, the leader on the basketball team, the best dressed kid. He's the one that has everything first. That's the kid we targeted. And because the thinking was, if we can get that kid, he'll influence other people. And that's exactly what happened. How do you get that kid, you mean? So we we really had to study and learn as much about what they wanted. We talked to kids. We, you know, interacted with them and really tried to understand what they what they would expect from a brand like Jordan. If if we were to create a brand around Jordan, what what are your expectations from that? And they told us they they were willing to share with us that, you know, the product has to be right. The communication has to be right. All the things that we're, you know, doing and focusing and targeting them have to be on point. And, uh, and, and the more we learned and studied the consumer, the more we understood, you know, what we needed to do to build a brand. I mean, you, when he was playing, you had fantastic commercials that were quite often like mini movies. And that was an exciting part of the whole Jordan thing. After he retires, you don't really have that. Um, the, the visibility was less, but the product continued to be very hot. Well, I think the, the first, um, so the first shoe that we launched after Michael playing was the Air Jordan 15. And um, I, I felt like we came up with a great marketing campaign. We took a, a Stevie Wonder song, Overjoyed, and had Mary J. Blige do the voiceover and we incorporated a number of our athletes, but it, it showed Michael not as an athlete, but as a person kind of overlooking, kind of like overlooking everything. And that was the whole goal. And I think that commercial actually really did help kind of shift the focus a little bit for people because they're like, okay, MJ's not a player anymore, but he's still, he's still the man in this, you know, you know what I mean? And I think that was, that was the message that we wanted to convey. And I think uh, you know, that campaign actually, actually helped do that. We did. Uh, we also, I don't know, I'm sure you have probably seen the iconic picture with MJ with the six rings on his finger. That was part of that campaign. That was part of launching that, that, uh, that shoe. And the whole idea again was MJ's not a player anymore. He's evolved beyond that. And he's now kind of this business person, this guy overlooking this business and helping to, to, drive and create this business. And I think uh, that connected with consumers. I mean, usually you're, you're uh, people don't usually think about Nike as fashion, but it is a fashion company. There's a technological aspect, but it's a fashion company. And generally the next generation wants to reject what the previous generation held dear just to create their own identity. And it's kind of amazing that a generation multiple generations that didn't see him play that had their own icons offered to him continued to hold him 
in this esteem and continue to wear the shoes and buy the clothes. It's not just those of us who watched him play and rooted for him as he was going through the flu game and all these sorts of things. It's the the next generations, right, that, that could have coalesced around yeah. Kobe, LeBron, et cetera, that still continue to venerate him and buy the gear. No, no question. That, um, you know, I think there were a number of things that, that kind of played into that. Like I said, first of all, I think, um, you know, I think our marketing kind of resonated with, with our core consumer. I think um, things like Space Jam helped, right? Because most kids growing up, they see Space Jam at some point along the line and Michael Jordan becomes a hero to, to them. Uh, in recent times, um, the, uh, the Last Dance has created a great amount of momentum for us because, uh, you know, people are getting to know my, I, I've had friends call me and say, man, my, my 12 year old daughter who never asked or thought about Jordans, we watched The Last Dance, she now wants Jordans. And so, I mean, it, it's really been, there've been a number of things that I think that have kept MJ kind of fresh in young people's minds. And, uh, you know, and again, I think part of that is uh, what we've done from a, from a marketing and uh, communications perspective as well. My, my 12 year old asked for Jordans for Christmas. (laughs) I don't think she's ever watched more than a second of him playing. It's, it's bigger than an associate with, with the direct individual. I mean, like there's a lot of people who don't know that Stan Smith was actually a great tennis player. That's an iconic shoe beyond, but with the last dance, did that come from you guys saying, Hey, what can we do to push this name up again? No, no, no. So, so, um, from what I understand and, uh, when, when, when that, when they were going into that last season, the NBA came to Michael and said, Hey, we'd like to have a film crew follow you for the entire season behind the scenes. And we'll never use this unless you say it's okay. Uh, if nothing else, you'll have some good home movies to watch, but you know, we will never use this unless you say it's okay. And so it's that footage set for like 20 years. And, uh, uh, during that time period, um, I think folks came to Michael a number of times and finally he agreed to go forward with it. And that's how the last dance kind of came came to be. Why now? I think he just felt comfortable. This was a decision on his part that had nothing to do with, with the brand or with selling shoes or any of that. I think he just was at a point where he was okay with sharing that part of who he is. So when you're at the top of the Jordan brand, how often is he calling you and saying, you know, we really screwed up over here. You got to do better over here. I'm unhappy with such and such. Because he talks about, you know, in the last day, it's like, I'm hard to be a teammate with because I, I want perfection. I want to win. I don't want to be your friend. I want to punch you in the face and get you to knock down shots and whatever. So is he that sort of way as a, as a corporate partner? Uh, he, he's definitely, um, he's definitely, pushing us to be as good as we possibly can. I mean, he hasn't punched anybody in the face on no. that team, but no. I, but he, he definitely pushes us to, to be the best that we can be. And, you know, he will call and say, Hey, what, what was this about? Or why did you guys do this? Or why aren't we doing that? Because he, you know, he looks at this as uh, this brand represents him and he wants to make sure that we're, you know, doing it and representing him in the best. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, 
Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Best way that we can. So, uh, yeah, he definitely is involved. And, you know, a lot to me, uh, he, he understands this business more than most people that work at Nike because he's been around it for so long. He's been a part of it for so long. He's a super smart guy. So he's learned a lot about this business. And so when he sees something that doesn't, feel right or doesn't look right, he can point it, he can, he can identify it and he'll point it out to us for sure. A lot of people want to be in the C-suite. They want to be, you know, the boss. How does one get to be a chairman of not necessarily just this brand? You probably could have been a chairman you know, you have executive skills. You could have been a chairman at, at any number of companies. So how do we get to that level? I think um, for me, uh, you know, going back to when I got out and was going to college and was working on my degree at, at Temple, um, you know, one of the things I thought about was, uh, you know, what what did I want to do or how did I want my career to, to play out? and uh, there, you know, you have this, when you're going through the interview process, there's a question that's always like, oh, so where do you see yourself in five years, right? And I thought a lot about that question. And as my undergraduate degree is in accounting, so the typical answer would have been to be a controller or a CFO. But for me, it was really, I, I wanted to be a decision maker. And I wanted to be in a situation where, you know, I was willing to make decisions um, and take the responsibility for those decisions. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully they're right, but I was willing to take the responsibility versus, you know, decisions get made. And then you're just like someone who helps to carry out those decisions. I actually wanted that responsibility of being a decision maker. And I think that's what drove, kind of drove me to look for more and more ways to be involved in, in decision-making. Um, you know, I, I, uh, when I first started working at Campbell Soup, um, and even beyond that, 
every opportunity I got to learn more about different parts of the business. So even though I was in uh, accounting and finance, I tried my best to learn as much as I could about marketing, about sales, about how products are developed, all those things, because I figured by learning as much as I can about those other areas, it would help me do my job better. And I think the more I understood and learned about how the business ran, not just from a finance perspective, but across the board, I think that was preparing me to be able to be a president or, you know, running, running the company because I was kind of aware of different parts of the business and how they all came together. So that's critical. You, you, you have to have a broad understanding of the company and all the different facets and not just master one area, but be able to jump into any number of areas. Well, and I think um, to, to, to understand those areas, but not to try to be an expert in all those areas, because again, to me, um, you know, you're spreading yourself too thin if you do that. I think one of the keys for me is, you know, trying to find and hire the right people, put them in the right roles and give them the resources and support and vision that they need, but to get out of the way and let them do their jobs. Because I think if you try to be everything and try to do every job, you, you, you spread yourself too thin and you can't be an expert in everything. So to me, um, you know, my approach has always been, uh, like I said, put the right people in the right roles, uh, give them the support and the resources that they need and let them do their job. And that's, that's kind of worked for me. You, you talked about at the beginning of your career, they said, well, where do you see yourself in five years? But let's talk about later in your career when you've had experience at Nike and the chairman role is coming open at some time in the near future. And so how does that work? Is it like, what, were, was it always like, oh, we're grooming Larry and he will be the next one? Or is there an interview process where you have to sort of go through and that you have to win that competition? Like, how does that happen? Well, I think with with uh, with this particular role in Jordan, um, we didn't have a chairman role until recently. And it was created, um, you know, because I was the president of Jordan for a couple stretches before going to the trailblazers and after the trailblazers. And as, um, and, you know, as I was kind of getting towards like, okay, I don't know how much longer I want to do this, how much I want to be involved. Uh, the decision was made, let's create a board, a Jordan advisory board. And I would be the chairman of that board. And that way I could stay involved, continue to be able to help out where I can and make a contribution where I can, but I'm not responsible for the day to day. Uh, anymore. There's someone else that runs all the day to day. And that works perfectly for me. See, that's the question. How does one get the folks to say, I should be the chairman? I, I, like, how do you get, because there's years of work that get you into that position where the decision makers say, that's the guy. Well, I mean, I had been, uh, I was the president. I was the first president of Jordan when we started it. Uh, and when I came back, after the trailblazers, um, you know, the business kind of took off again and we had a nice run. And I think, uh, I, I you know, I, I think th that there's a feeling that, um, even though I'm not going to be running the day to day, I can still make a contribution. There's still information. There's still knowledge. There's experience that I can share with the team that can say, Hey, 
you know what? Uh, maybe you, did you guys think about it this way? Or we did that already and it didn't work. And here's why, or here's what, how we should do that differently than we did it the last time. So I think it's more of an advisory role. And, and I think the reason for that is, um, you know, the success that I've had uh, along the way and getting the brand to where it is. I think when we were coming up, the at least the image of the boss, he was gruff, he was tough, he was kind of mean. And in the modern world, the, the boss is supposed to be much more nice and approachable, sometimes a cheerleader, like I think about Paul Allen and some other folks, Steve Jobs in his own way. Um, it, it, that, that, that's been an interesting sort of cultural shift that the boss is supposed to be much more sort of huggable and, 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 and sort of lovable. And you, as a leader, have to be much more just sort of genial, right? And much more, much more accepting and acceptable to the folks, to the soldiers. So I, I guess my, my um, thought around leadership has always been that um, the leader is there to serve the people that you're leading. You're, you're there to be of service to those folks. And I think if you take that approach and you look at it that way, then you're going to be willing to give them what they need, but it really is, you know, you're, you're, you're leading, but you're really serving those people. You're, you know, it's your responsibility to help um, guide and direct folks in the right way, but from a service perspective. That's a really important point. Is there one shoe that is a little bit more important than all the others to uh, uh, the brand? Yeah, I would say there are two. The AJ1, which is the Air Jordan 1, which is uh, a franchise unto itself now. And on a, um, on, on a regular basis, it continues to sell. Uh, we continue, and it's so versatile. It's such a versatile shoe. You can do so much with that shoe. Um, people, we, we can do it so people can wear it with suit if they want to wear it. I mean, there's so many ways that you can do, so many things you can do with the AJ1 that it's really been, um, a, a major staple for us. The other one I would say is the Air Jordan 11. Um, that's the patent leather uh, 11. And and that one is also uh, one that is extremely, extremely important to the brand. And we, we do a, a, a lot of business with that shoe. Do you think about how it is that the one got from being an athletic shoe to where almost nobody would wear it on a court anymore, that, that it is acceptable with 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 a suit i think um you know first, first of all as far as playing in the shoe the technology has come so far since that shoe in terms of technology that goes into basketball shoes that that shoe just didn't have because the technology didn't exist at that point so i think from a playing perspective uh you know there are a lot better shoes out there to, to play in than the aj1 these days i think from a from a style and from a culture perspective, the shoe is just such, it's an iconic shoe and it's become an icon. It's become an icon in the community now. And like I said, we look at different ways to, to do it. So different colors, different materials, just things that keep making it different. And I think that's what attracts people because like I said, it is such a versatile shoe that you can do so many things with it that it just continues. And it's, you're right. It has transitioned from becoming 
you know, a basketball shoe to a, a cultural streetwear shoe. And, and I think, um, you know, that's like, like I said, the technology for basketball shoes has come so far now that it's, it's not a shoe that I would recommend no. playing basketball in. So you were the president of the trailblazers for several years. I want to talk about the trailblazers a little bit. Um, as a longtime NBA fan, I, I attach a certain um, sense of long-term heartbreak to the Trailblazers because the team has been consistently good for a long time, but, but since the late 70s, not quite good enough to get over the hump. You had Drexler now, you know, you had the, the, the Rasheed Wallace group, you had uh, now this great Dame Lillard group in competition all the time, but the West is so tough. There's always somebody. And of course we don't think about the the trailblazers without thinking about the two epic draft moments, you know, and we talk about like Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. Nobody would have done anything different. Nobody exactly. would have looked at this, this seven foot two guy at Ohio state killing him and said, let's take the skinny kid from Texas who we could probably blow over if we breathe hard enough. Nobody would have, you know, and now the Sam Bowie over Jordan decision. That's a little different. <laughs> it is. It is. Fortunately, I, I wasn't around for right, that. Right. But, but I think that when you think about it, you know, in the context, so they had Clyde Drexler at that point. So do you also draft Jordan when you already have Clyde Drexler? Um, so that, that, that was part of the decision for us. We had Brandon Roy, who to me is one of the best to ever lace up a pair of sneakers. Um, we had LaMarcus Aldridge, who is a perennial all-star, one of the best, you know, power forwards to play the game. And then when you add Greg Oden to that mix, we figured, Hey, we've got our big three. We've got our big three. That's going to take us into the playoffs and possibly all the way. Um, and it, you know, Greg ends up, doesn't play the first season at all. And, you know, over the, the over the five years that he was with the trailblazers, I think he played 82 games. So one season over those five years, Brandon uh, led, Brandon was a big part of the team's turnaround. Cause that's when we were going from the, jailblazers back to the trailblazers and um and his he, to me like i said he's one of the best to ever put on a pair of sneakers bad knees though and brandon could do more than most players with bad knees if he had if he had had healthy knees he'd still be one of the best players in the league to me do you think it's fair to feel a sort of long-term heartbreak for the team i know that Almost every fan base is heartbroken every year. But when you when you think you're in this conversation repeatedly and you still can't get over the hump, that seems a little bit harder than like we're way out of the conversation. No, it, it, it does. And, uh, you know, but I have to say uh, to the credit of Portland fans, they have hung in there with this team. I mean, fans have continued to come out and support the team. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me, the support that, uh, that this team gets from the fan base in Portland. It's, it's an amazing fan base to me. Do you, is there, is there an extra challenge being a smaller market? There, there absolutely is. I think, um, 
you know, with the things that the league is doing now and the way the collective bargaining agreement has been worked out over, you know, the, trying to, to narrow that gap between the big markets and the small markets. But, you know, there there is, I mean, just from a perspective of, you know, the Lakers can charge a whole lot more for a ticket than the Trailblazers can. You, you know what I mean? Just be based on, it's the Lakers. It's based on the market that they're in. So I think there are some uh, some disadvantages. But then you look at teams like, you know, San Antonio or teams where they have figured out how to be successful in a small market. Um, so, you know, it, it's this, it, it, there is some there are some disadvantages to it. But I do think that um, teams have been able to figure Milwaukee. I mean, the Bucks, they figured out how, how to win in a small market. I think. Um, you know, and again, I think if we had been lucky enough with our our draft picks with Greg and Brandon, and I think we might we would have been in that conversation as well. Some folks have alleged that the NBA doesn't really want the smaller market teams to be pushing into the finals because it hurts the ratings. As a, now, the, but the Trailblazers are clearly one of the marquee teams for decades. But but you don't you don't put any stock in that because you know where I'm going. There are people who've said maybe the refereeing supported the Lakers yeah. or whatever. I, I have seen none of that in my interaction in the NBA. I don't you know, I think uh, again, we just had Milwaukee, which is a small market team to win the final. Uh, so, again, it's not like um you know, there there are exceptions to the small market. I just think it's it's a little more challenging being in a small market just because of revenue generation and things like that. But and and attraction for players. I think uh, you know players are attracted to markets like L.A., New York, Chicago. Um, but but I, I don't think there's any validity to the league kind of trying to you know circumvent the process and, and for, I don't think there's anything to that. Well, it's interesting as a New Yorker that you say players are attracted to LA and New York because yes, LA generation after generation wins free agent battles. The New York Knicks, and I say this as a Brooklyn Nets fan, have never won any free agent battles. They are not the New York Yankees. Nobody has ever show who had choices like you know those those guys who like I can go anywhere I want. They have never ever chosen the Knicks. Why is that? Uh, you know that's a good question. I, I I would think that the Knicks would be an attractive uh, place, but you know you look at someone like Carmelo who came to the Knicks and he was a star at the time he came to the Knicks and he chose to come to the Knicks. So I think there there are exceptions to that rule, uh, but I, I just think that um you know I, I right now i think the knicks have uh some great people in their management group now um you know leon rose and william wesley are i think guys who understand the game they know how to connect with and relate to players uh and i think i'm, I'm i think they will help make a difference with the knicks but i but i you know it's it's it is a tough situation to look at a team like the knicks and that they've struggled the way they have over the years because, uh, you know, New York does offer a lot more as a city than than a lot of other cities do. Heck yeah. So, okay, so players, because part of your 
get your genius. Part of your your job has been evaluating players. You've watched a lot of guys up close. Outside of Jordan, who's clearly the most exciting player that we've seen in our lifetime, who are some of the guys who really kind of made your heart leap and you're like, okay, I I would pay to watch him. He's really exciting. Well, I mean, there, there are a number of players uh, that, that have, uh, you know, that are, that are incredible players and that are fun to watch. Um, I, I don't know if you're talking about players that are associated with the Jordan brand or just in general. Just, but just me, in general, as you're in your years around basketball. I mean, you have to look at players like LeBron and uh, Steph Curry and, uh, you know, just Dame Lillard. I mean, these guys light it up. The, to me, the, the three-point shot has been like an amazing evolution to me to see these guys shooting the ball from almost half court and on a consistent and a regular basis. I mean, that to me is just like, it's added a whole nother dimension to the game. You know, you look at what Steph does, you look at what, uh, what Dame does. I mean, all these guys are shooting from like, like I said, almost half court on a regular basis. It's not like they're even it up as the shot clock is grinding down. They're coming up and setting up for almost a half court shot, which is, which is pretty amazing to me and, and making them on a consistent basis. Yeah. You know, the, the, the game of the eighties would not recognize the game of today. Exactly. Exactly. I remember uh, MJ in the finals, you know, doing doing this because he, and and again that that was what six three pointers he's made, and you know today six three pointers in a game is almost like, hey, that's a, that's a regular occurrence for people. You know what I mean? That's a normal game for Steph and Clay yeah. and a lot of yeah these yeah Steph six 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 three pointers is a, a bad game for Steph. <laughs> your your last year with the Trailblazers, you picked Dame Lillard. Um, clearly, not a diamond in a rough, but not necessarily something that everybody would have grabbed at. What did you and your team uh, see to say, mm, that guy, we could build around that guy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we had, uh, I thought, a, a, an incredible scouting team. Uh, you know, scouting staff at the Trailblazers during that time. And they identified Dame as someone not only that could shoot the ball, but was a leader um, that, you know, played with the kind of intensity and uh, dedicate, put in the work that was needed. I mean, the, 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 uh, the teams, and I, and I know what the, I can only speak for the Trailblazers, but I assume it's the same with all the teams. Teams do a really intense background when it comes to picking uh, someone in the draft, especially in a first round pick. And, you know, we, we did the team did our, did, did our homework and, um, you know, came back and said, Hey, this is our guy. This is the guy we want. And if he's available, uh, we, we had the sixth pick at that point. If he's available at six, he's absolutely our guy. And he was available and we took him. So wait, so when a, when a person at your level or your team is evaluating somebody who's clearly got the talent. What are some of the, the character things that you want to see? Well, one of the things that uh, we had decided, and, and, and again, Paul, Paul Allen uh, was, a, was focused on this coming out of the whole jailblazer time period. We made a decision that not only are we going to look at talent, but we're going to look at character as well. 
We're going to look into who this person is, what they bring to the table, what their background is, what we can expect from them as a person, not just what we can expect from them on the basketball court. And that became important to us. And so, you know, as we were looking at drafts or trades, we also not just looked at the talent aspect, but also the character aspect of the person as well. So you guys made it a very conscious thing. Like we're going to, we're going to squash this jailblazers thing and, and move in a different direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause I mean, it, it was, it was, it was kind of exciting to some of us <laughs> watching the, I, I was never, I never lived in Oregon, but you know, it was kind of an exciting you know, sort of thing. You know, but. you know, it was, it was okay. Uh, when they were winning, you know what I mean? It, not okay, but it was easier to, to accept when they were winning, when the winning stopped and, you know, it just seemed like it was just a dysfunctional situation. Um, I think, you know, that's when Paul decided that, you know, we had to make some changes. Um, well, you know, brother, it's been, uh, it's been really an honor to talk to you. You know, do you think that if the Jordan one had not been banned, that perhaps the story would have, right. Cause that, that was, that was a huge moment for the history for the shoe. Right. Uh, you know, and yeah. it made it something that was like, wow, like it gave it a whole different level of, of cultural and news importance. Um, and really put a spotlight on it. Um, do you think that if that had not happened, that the story might've been different? Uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I, um, I, I tell people all the time, I think the whole Jordan phenomenon um, was just the stars aligned. Uh, you know, MJ was the right player. Nike was the right company. Chicago was the right city. I mean, everything just kind of came. The NBA was at a point where it was the right time. It just all kind of aligned. And I don't know that we will see that particular alignment again. But to me, um, and and so Nike recognizing the fact that hey, the shoe, the band, let's 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 play into that. Let's play into the fact that the shoe's been banned. And I think to your point, it created a buzz around that shoe that wouldn't have been there had the had that not happened. But I think Mike, Nike was able to recognize that and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take advantage of this opportunity and figure out how we can make this shoe even more special. By talking about the fact that it's been banned by the NBA, and uh, so so again, to me, I, I think the stars just aligned perfectly, and um, you know, again, I don't know that we'll see that again, but I, I think that was that was the case for this this particular situation with with MJ with the Jordan brand. I think it all just kind of came together perfectly, and I'm just I'm just grateful that I was able to be a part of it. Thanks so much to Larry Miller for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests. 
because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.